Open up to Genesis chapter 1. I said earlier we're starting a new sermon series today, and we are. We're going to walk from Genesis 1 through about Genesis 22. Uh, that's going to take us up to Advent. I know that's a ways away. Uh, but we're going to take our time in some of it. In fact, the text for this morning is Genesis 1.1. And that's it. That's all we're going to talk about. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. How many of you are Pinterest junkies? You like going on Pinterest? A few of you kind of crinkle. How many of you have no idea what Pinterest is? God bless you. There's still a few people in the world that don't know. That's good. Okay. There's hope for humanity. <laughs> Pinterest, for those of you who don't know, which it's okay if you don't, it's kind of an online corkboard for people to store ideas. And so, when people are scouring the internet, especially it seems crafts or food, uh, just ideas. As they're scouring the internet and they find something that, oh, this is really neat, they can pin it on their Pinterest board. And then all their friends can see what they pinned. And the idea is someday, maybe, in my wildest dreams, I'll get around to making this thing and I'll be as awesome as the person that posted it in the first place. It's really uh, a lesson in just humility every time you open your Pinterest board to see all the things you're never actually going to do. But that's beside the point. My wife is on Pinterest. She loves it. I'm not. Why are we talking about Pinterest? Pinterest has brought about this wonderful thing on the Internet that I personally have come to enjoy called the Pinterest fail. Have you heard of this? Yeah, so the idea on Pinterest is that people post these perfect crafts perfect cupcakes, all these perfect things that they've made or that they found, and then everybody else gets to try it. And nine times out of ten, when you try it, what you make doesn't come close to what was put on Pinterest, probably because they used Photoshop to actually make the perfect thing that they put up there. I just want to show you a couple things. Now, okay, so here's a Pinterest picture, somebody creating a a picture of their newborn. Oh, so cute, and here's the fail. You know, you've got this plan. There's this idea. I can do that. This is no big deal. Uh, It's perfect. Hey, Chuck, could you move the mouse pointer off to the side a little bit? Just get it. There we go. Okay. All right. So here's another one. This one. Now, I got to be honest. The first one's scary enough. Here's a hedgehog. I don't know why you'd want a hedgehog cake. Have you seen this one? I should warn you, if you have nightmares, you may want to shut your eyes. There's the... (laughs) The fail. Can you see the teeth? That's my favorite part. Yeah. You know, you started well. You had a good idea, a good plan. This one's pretty funny, too. Now, this actually, this is one I would like to try. A glow jar. I have no idea what's in there, but that's pretty cool. I'd like to try that. So, somebody tried it, and this is what happened. I, I think that's pretty funny. Just nothing. There's nothing there. Fail. I don't know if that's real or if that was just a total joke, but it was pretty funny. Sometimes plans fail, right? And sometimes our plans fail because we're not gifted enough. Uh, we're not talented enough. Maybe we don't have the supplies. We don't have the time. We don't have the knowledge. Whatever it is. And so we start to do something and it just doesn't come out the way it should. And I think in our human existence, we get used to that. And part of of life, I think, is learning how to deal with our mistakes. How do we start a plan, fail at it, and then pick up and keep going? 
Sometimes we fail because the plans are bad in the first place. We planned thinking something would happen and it didn't happen. We planned assuming we knew all the elements of the plan and we didn't. And so we get hit with reality and we have to tweak and change our plans. I think we all face that all the time. So as we come to Scripture, the question is, number one, is there a plan from beginning to end? Genesis to Revelation. Does God truly have a plan? And I'm going to propose, and I hope you agree with me, Scripture answers that with an absolute and definite yes. There is a plan. So then we look at the world and we say, okay, so God has this plan, it's perfect, and then we look at the world and we say, man, this is really messed up. What happened? Is this like a Pinterest fail? Is, you know, did God have this idea in his mind of what he thought everything was going to be? And then it happened and reality turned out and he went, well, that's not really exactly what I thought. And I'm going to suggest to you that according to scripture, no, that's not what happened at all. God knew exactly what would happen. His plan has never failed from beginning to end. And so we're going to look at this idea of the plan from the beginning. And I want to give you a little bit of background as to why we're doing this series. A lot of the ideas uh, for me that making me want to dig into Genesis with you actually reaches all the way back to our sermon series on Revelation. At the end of the sermon series on Revelation, if you remember the last two chapters of Revelation, picture the, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven and descending to earth. And it says, now the dwelling of God will be with men. And it's this the, the way the New Jerusalem is described is as a temple, the perfect temple, the perfect dwelling place of God and his reign and his authority. And it's perfectly with us forever because sin has been completely removed. And then in the next chapter, verse 22, the, the eternal state of God dwelling with us shifts from a temple to a garden. And it's described at the beginning of chapter 22 as this recreation of the Garden of Eden. And those two images have really stuck with me. And I hope they did with you as well. Because as I've combed through Scripture, as we studied 1 Corinthians, as I've studied things on my own, those images keep popping up again and again and again and again. And it got me thinking, if this is the way God's plan culminates in history, and continues into eternity. Then there must be aspects of that plan that were there all along. And if we go all the way back to the beginning, we should see that plan instituted. We should see it all the way back in Genesis chapter 1 and the rest of the early chapters of Genesis. And so that's what this sermon series is about. What do we see from the early chapters of Genesis? that show us God's plan. Now, at this point, and and as we walk through, especially this first uh, sermon, to kind of set these things up, I've got to tell you, I'm nervous about something. There's a lot of technical details in here. I want to help you to see some things in Scripture that maybe you've never seen before. It's not some novel interpretation. I'm not making this stuff up. But we're going to be slugging through some details here. And it might be tempting to check out and say, oh, this is just an educational experience. I mean, come on, Pastor Dave, this isn't seminary. I'm struggling with things in my own life. I believe if we can really understand God's plan and we can understand the God of that plan, 
all those issues in our life will find their proper perspective. Doesn't make them go away. Doesn't make it, oh, it's okay that you're going through that because God's in control, so, you know, put on a smile. It doesn't work that way. But to know that whatever we're going through is held in the hand of God and is in some way in his plan and his plan is being carried out, I believe gives us a hope that nothing else in this world can. And so as we look at this series, beginning with the end in mind, I think we're going to see the plan of God at the very beginning in creation. It's the plan that continues through the Old Testament that really builds up to Jesus Christ, his life, his death, his burial, his resurrection. It continues through the church and the New Testament and the church today that we're a part of. And it continues all the way into the end times that we see in Revelation. It is a plan that hinges and is all about Jesus Christ, as the video said earlier. So we're going to dig into this together. And I'm going to ask you, as we start this series, would you bow with me and pray? And let's ask God's blessing on this time. Heavenly Father, this is your word. And God, there are so many times as a pastor, it's a privilege to come and preach your word, but it's terrifying too. Because God, I fear that I'm putting my own thoughts, my own ideas on it. And so I pray that you would speak to us, that you would show us your plan, that you would help us to get that framework through which we can better understand all of Scripture according to your perfect plan and your will. In your name we pray. Amen. So we're going to start with the focus of the plan. What is is the focus? What's the focal point or the overarching purpose of God's plan? And I do believe we see it all the way back in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In that one verse, I think we are introduced to the overarching plan of God. And you may think I'm stretching that. And I really struggled with this because I don't want to be novel. I don't want you to leave this going, man, he got so much out of that one verse. I don't want to be that guy, okay? But I want to show you some things that God has been laying on my heart. And we're going to walk through a lot of scripture today. I'll put it up on the the screen here so you don't have to, you know, get blisters on your fingers uh, as you're swiping your iPad or whatever. But we'll see. Okay. So we're going to look at the focus of the plan. And let's just start with those first four words. In the beginning, God. Now, in those first four words, one of the things we see is that God is the subject of of all of Scripture. It is very easy. Now, I hope when I say that that you're nodding and think, well, yeah, God's, of course, it's the Bible, Dave. I mean, God's the subject. It's about him. But when you read about Moses, what's your application? God, help me to have the faith of Moses. Help me to be like Moses. Help me to follow you like Moses. We read about Abraham. God, help me to have the faith of Abraham. Daniel, God, help me in my lion's den to stand up to my lions. Help me to be able to do that. We read about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Can, can we enter the fiery furnace if that's where God's calling us to? Now, all of that is good, okay? I'm not saying it's wrong, but that's what I'm going to call a secondary application. A secondary application is something that a passage applies to. It's right and proper to apply it to that. But it's not actually the main point of the passage. Is the story of Daniel and the lion's den and the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego is the primary point of those stories to hold up Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to say, look at how awesome they are. And the answer is no. The answer is to hold up, look at the God they're trusting in. 
The problem is in our modern world, we've become so self-centered that we read Scripture through this lens of who is God telling me I should be? Who am I to be like? What does this mean for me? And we, we don't stop and say, what is this saying about God first and foremost? Now again, a lot of times as you're reading Scripture, no problem at all. You're going to get great application from that. There is a lot to be learned about our own lives through Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, Moses, all the rest. But if we stop there, we're going to miss so much. You see, in our modern scientific world, we like to ask certain questions. Remember the questions you were taught about news stories? Who, what, when, where, why, how? Is that all of them? I think I got them all. Who, what, when, where, why, how? And that's kind of the, the basic element. I know, I just... It's like all one word. I think in our modern scientific world, we key in on a few of those questions. Where? Where did the garden take place? We're reading the creation story. We want to know where is it? Where can the archaeologist go and dig up and find certain artifacts to know this is where it is? Show me something to prove this is where it took place. Where's the ark? Where's the land? Where's all these things? They like to know when. When did God create the world? What's the order of the events that these events happened in? Can we chart them on a timeline? And can we put dates with each one of them? We want an outline that works. We want historical evidence of the occurrence of these events. When did they take place? We want to know what. When we come to Genesis 1, we want to know what exactly did God create? Was there some sort of primordial soup that existed at the beginning and God just sort of took it and shaped it? Was there a big bang and God just sort of made sure it exploded in the proper way? Or was there nothing and God created everything out of nothing? What exactly was created? We want to know how. How did God create everything? What was the process that he used? Was it some sort of what we would call spontaneous miracle or was it a process of natural events that God ordained? How? Now, at the beginning of this, especially as we walk through Genesis 1, 2, and 3, I want to make something very clear. These are good questions to ask as we come to Genesis, okay? There's whole organizations, there's answers in Genesis, there's all these organizations that are taking modern scientific worldviews weighing them against Genesis and saying, how does it fit? How does it overlap? How do we respond to the modern scientific world based on Genesis? That's good, okay? I want you to hear me say that because there may be things I say as we walk through this that might make you think the otherwise. That is good. It is proper. Genesis has a lot to say about the scientific means that God used to create the world. I believe that, all right? I believe in a literal creation. I, frankly, I believe in a literal six days. I think it's the clearest reading of this. I believe there are clear scientific things going on here. But I believe those are secondary applications. I believe that if we can understand how the original readers of this text would have understood it, we would see that their priorities were different. Again, that doesn't mean it has no application to us today. It does. But I think by stopping there, by simply trying to answer evolution, as important as that is, we've missed some really big things in Genesis chapters 1 and 2. That I think the early readers, the Israelites, when they first got it, the people through the Old Testament and even into the New Testament, as we're going to see, 
they saw something there that I think we've missed. You see, the questions that they read or that they asked were different. They wanted to know who. They weren't so interested in all the scientific reasoning behind how everything worked and the order and and cataloging and everything and trying to get a flow chart. They wanted to know at the beginning of it all who stood there because that's the person they were supposed to worship. And it was a huge question for them in their smorgasbord of deities and idols in different lands and different peoples and traditions. Who am I supposed to worship? They wanted to know who. The other thing they wanted to know was why. We want to know how things were created. They wanted to know why. What was the purpose behind it? I think by limiting Genesis to a strictly scientific understanding of things, we've fallen sometimes into the scientific method that frankly doesn't care about why. Science isn't here to answer why. Science is here to answer how. Scripture is here to answer why. Are you with me so far? Now, again, I'm going to say it again. I'll probably say it a couple times. That doesn't mean it has nothing to tell us about science. You all with me on that? Did you hear me say that? Otherwise, you're going to crucify me as a heretic, okay? It does tell us a lot about science, but it tells us a lot more as well. Why were things created? Scripture is first and foremost about God. Psalm 96, verses 1 through 6 says this, Sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord. Praise His name. Proclaim His salvation day after day. Declare His glory among the nations, His marvelous deeds among the peoples. For great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. He is to be feared above all gods. For the gods of the nations are idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and glory are in his sanctuary. Do you see the emphasis there? Who made it and why did he make it? David prays in 1 Chronicles 29, 10-13, as this big offering has been taken so that they can begin to build the tabernacle, or I'm sorry, the temple, the dwelling place of God on the earth. David prays, and listen to what he says. Praise be to you, Lord, the God of our father Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Yours, Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the majesty and the splendor. For everything in heaven and earth is yours. Yours, Lord, is the kingdom. You are exalted as head over all. Wealth and honor come from you. You are the ruler of all things. In your hands are strength and power to exalt and give strength to all. Now, our God, we give you thanks and praise your glorious name. It's all about God. So I would say if we read the first couple chapters of Genesis and what we come away with is a chart of the days of creation, if what we come away with is a timeline of history, old, young, whatever it is, if what we come away with is phenomenal answers to to the scientific method and reasoning of our world, if that's all we come away with, as good as that is, we have completely missed the point of Genesis 1 and 2. We've got to start with coming away with with saying, God, you are God and I am not. You made everything, not me. You created it for a reason, not me. Go back to Genesis chapter 1.1. In the beginning, God created. That phrase, in the beginning, 
Again, I think we read this and we simply say, okay, it's just, well, this is creation. So he's talking about the very beginning. As I search this phrase in scripture, I'm going to suggest it means a little bit more than that. It does mean that. But for them, at the beginning, if God is doing something at the beginning, it's talking about God putting a plan in place. Creation is the account of the beginning, not just of the stuff of creation, not just where the world came from, but the plan for which God created the world. The gospel writers saw it this way. Mark chapter 1, verse 1. The beginning of the gospel of Mark starts with these very words, the beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah. Now you might go, oh, come on, Dave, you're really reading into that. I mean, the guy's starting his book. He's saying in the beginning, it's a natural way to start. Okay, John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word. And who is the Word according to John chapter 1? Jesus. So both Mark and John are starting their Gospels with a retelling of the creation story. They're importing that language and they're applying it to who? Jesus. So what they're doing is they're saying this plan that God started all the way back in Genesis 1, they are taking that plan and they're saying, we have seen this being fulfilled in the Messiah, Jesus Christ. That's huge. All of Scripture is about God and His ultimate plan. Isaiah 46, 9-10 through 10 says, Remember the former things, those of long ago. I am God, there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. I make known the end from the beginning, from ancient times what is still to come. I say my purpose will stand and I will do all that I please. And so when we look back at Genesis 1, we see this repeated phrase, and we'll look at it in the coming weeks in creation. And God said, and then something happens. And then God said, and something happens. And then God said, and something happens. Creation is the account of God implementing his plan in this world. It's not just about where the stuff came from. It is that, but it's more than that. Now, this plan, as we trace it throughout Scripture, is all about God's glory. It's all about his purposes. Is there a lot of good stuff for us? Oh, absolutely. Oh my goodness, salvation God's blessing upon us. We'll see that as we walk through the garden passages. The incredible blessing of God in our lives. The the blessing of his very presence. There is so much that is good about God's plan for us. But we need to be very careful that we don't redefine God's plan as being all about us. We're a big part of that plan. But his plan is even bigger. It's all about him and his glory. Now, we would expect to see some particular aspects of this plan in the early parts of Genesis. And I think even in Genesis 1-1, we're going to see some of that. So let's look at the shape or, or kind of the basic components of this plan, okay? Here's where things get really interesting. In the beginning, God created the what? The heavens and the earth. Now, it's very easy And again, I think it's proper to say those two words are simply talking about everything. The heavens and the earth are everything that there is. I can't tell you the number of commentaries I looked at that they they breezed right through that. Oh, it's just talking about everything. The heavens and the earth, it's everything that there is. God talked about, God made everything. And then in the coming verses, we're going to see how he made it. I'm going to suggest to you that the ancient world saw that phrase extremely different than we do. We skip over it like it's just, oh, it's everything. 
in the rest of the passage, we see something. In the ancient world, they had several different uses of the word heaven or heavens. In fact, there were about three. One, we see in verse 20, when God creates the birds, let the water teem with living creatures, let the birds fly above the earth across the vault of the sky. Now, if you have the King James, anybody have the King James? What word does it have? Verse, at the end of verse 20. Heavens. May they fly across the vault of the heavens. In fact, if you go back to Genesis chapter 1, verse, uh, let's see, 6. And God said, let there be a vault separating the waters to separate the water from water. And God made the vault and separated the water under the vault from the water above it. And it was so, and God called the vault, this is verse 8, Skies, what the NIV says. The actual Hebrew is heaven. But there's an interesting qualifying word, firmament. It's a great King James word. The firmament of the heavens. And all throughout Genesis chapter 1, except for verse 1, almost every place that the sky is called the heavens, there's this word firmament. And I tried to think of a good English definition, and I came up with a real technical one. Stuff. I think that's the closest we can get. The stuff of the sky. Because in the Hebrew mindset and in the ancient world, they didn't know what the sky was made of. It was just stuff. Now, were they wrong? No, they just didn't know what it was. They didn't know about nitrogen and oxygen and helium. I don't know if there's a lot of helium out there. Hydrogen, those sorts of things. Water, vapor, clouds. They just looked at the sky and they said, well, the stuff of the sky. So they called that one aspect of the heavens. There was another aspect of the heavens. That which is beyond the sky. In Jeremiah 8, verse 2, it it refers to the sun and the moon and all the stars of the heavens. So they looked out at night and they said, now we don't see the blue stuff, the stuff of the sky, that heavens. We see stars. We see a sun out there. We see a moon out there. They even could see planets out there. And they said, that's the beyond heavens. That's another kind of heavens. It's not the same, but it's still the stuff of the heavens. So there's these two uses. Now, if Genesis 1-1 is talking about that, then yes, all Genesis 1-1 is talking about is God created everything. But again, it's missing that key word of the firmament. So the question that I came up with is, is this really talking about just the stuff of creation? Or is it something more? And what I found was that there is a huge emphasis on what's called the third heavens in Scripture. It's this other way of using the heavens. In 1 Kings chapter 8, King Solomon prays at the dedication of the temple. This is the dwelling place of God on earth. Separated into two rooms in the most holy, the inner place. The holy of holies is the Ark of the Covenant. It was literally the place of God's Shekinah glory, his perfect dwelling on earth. He exists everywhere, but he chose to manifest his presence among the Israelites there. And Solomon prays this in verse 27, but will God really dwell on earth? The heavens, even the highest heaven, cannot contain you. And then a little later on in the prayer, he says this, hear the supplication of your servant and of your people Israel when they pray toward this place, the temple, hear from heaven, your dwelling place, and when you hear, forgive. Do you see how Solomon's using that? He's not just saying, God, you live in outer space. 
He's saying there's an aspect of the way they use this word heaven that wasn't just about the stuff of the sky or the stuff of outer space. It was about the very dwelling place of God. In Psalm 11, verse 4, it says, The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord is on his heavenly throne. He observes everyone on earth. His eyes examine them. In Hebrews, it picks up this idea when it talks about the sacrifice of Christ. 9.24, it says, For Christ did not enter a sanctuary made with human hands that was only a copy of the true one. He entered heaven itself, now to appear for us in God's presence. Matthew 6, the Lord's Prayer. We all know the Lord's Prayer, right? Look at what he says in the Lord's Prayer. Our Father in heaven. And again, okay, so God's in heaven. But he goes on, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Is Jesus in that prayer saying, God, I recognize that your perfect will is accomplished in the sky and in outer space, but the earth needs some help. Is that what he's talking about? No. What he's saying is, God, you dwell in this place we call heaven. Your perfect holiness dwells there. You reign perfectly there in your presence. It's the place at the end of Revelation that we see the new Jerusalem coming from to come and live here on the earth with us. It's the very dwelling place of God. It's also, according to Jesus in Matthew 6, it's the place where God's perfect will is always carried out. We looked at this in Revelations, the, the, the angels that dwell in the presence of God and the holiness just forever on fire because, because of his perfect holiness. Matthew chapter 5, verse 34 and 35, Jesus is speaking about taking oaths. He said, but I tell you, do not swear an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by earth, for it is his footstool. Now stick with me, okay? I know we're slugging through some some tough stuff here. Just stick with me. I want to show you a picture. This is a picture uh, of King Darius, so it's a little later than Genesis, but it's still from the Old Testament times. This is King Darius sitting on a throne. You see the throne there. It's a uh, um, a chair. It's a very fancy chair, but it would be raised up so that as he sat, he was still above the people that came in the room because, let's face it, he's the king. The throne throughout the ancient world was the place of the king's presence. It was the place and the signifier of his perfect authority where his will was to be executed and carried out and proclaimed. He sat and he reigned on his throne. Now, do you see the footstool? His feet are sitting on a footstool. It's a little bench, often padded, comfy for the king's feet. Because the chair was raised up so high, if the king didn't have a footstool, he'd be sitting there with dangling feet. And let's face it, nobody looks impressive with their feet dangling, right? I mean, come on. He had to have a footstool. Plus, I imagine if you sat there as a king for a long time, it's probably a little bit uncomfortable. So he has a footstool. Now, let's imagine, I should have gotten a chair. Let's imagine I'm the king, okay? I'm sitting on a throne. I've got my feet up on a footstool. And you come in from the end of my throne room that way. And you walk toward me, probably a long carpet, lots of guards, very impressive. You walk toward me and you've got a question. Where do you have to stop? What's the furthest you can get, the closest you can get to me? Where do you have to stop? The stool. 
In fact, if you were coming into the presence of the king and you approached the king, what would you do at that footstool? You would fall on your face. In fact, there's even ancient accounts of people kissing the footstool. It was a place of people saying, you are the king and I am not. I'm worthy only to be at your feet. You are powerful. And they would come and they'd say, king, I need your answer on something. I I have a dispute with my neighbor and they're stealing my cattle and this is going on. I need you to answer me. King, I'm looking for a favor. King, I've brought you a gift. I want to worship you. In some cultures, the king was even deity. I want to praise you and worship you. And all of that took place at the footstool. Now, let's look at some passages where this is brought up and applied. So you don't just think I'm making this up. First Chronicles chapter 28, verse 2. It says, King David rose to his feet and said, Listen to my people. Or listen to me, my fellow Israelites, my people. I had it in my heart to build a house as a place of rest for the ark of the covenant of the Lord for the footstool of our God. And I made plans to build it. Do you see how he's referring to the temple and specifically the ark in the temple? And what did the Israelites do when they came to the temple? They worshiped. They came to this place under God's authority to worship him. Psalm 132, verse 7, let us go to his dwelling place, let us worship at his footstool. So in Scripture, we have these two pictures. We have this place of God's throne, his ultimate heavenly authority, his perfect reign, his perfect presence, the throne. And then we have this place called the earth, and it's known as the footstool, the place where we live where we worship, where we serve. Do you see where this is going? Genesis chapter 1-1 is more than just the stuff of creation. And you're going to see as we walk through the rest of Genesis 1, Genesis 2, 3, even all the way through chapter 22, you're going to see this idea of God having a purpose of his perfect reign and our perfect worship lived out in this perfect relationship with him under his authority, under his perfect love. And here we are on the earth, the place that he made for the relationship with him, for us to worship him, to serve him, and to bring him glory. And the rest of Genesis chapter 1 is a shaping and a filling of that earth, the place where we dwell to worship God. Look, this is more than just an interesting study in words, at least interesting to me. It's more than that. This gets to the heart of who we are, why we exist, and why God created us. God had a plan from the very beginning. I believe it's stated in chapter 1, verse 1, and then it's filled out throughout the rest of the chapter. God didn't create you, and God didn't create me to be the ultimate authority in this world. We're not even created to be the ultimate authority in our own lives. That's his job. And you're going to see as we walk through these chapters in Genesis, there is a constant rebellion against God's authority. And whenever that happens, it seems like this plan is threatened, and yet God always carries out his plan. Much of our anxiety and much of our despair comes from us trying to take God's job from him. As you go through your day-to-day life, stop and think, Was I there in the beginning? Did I create heaven and earth? 
Because if I didn't, I am not in control. And I need to quit acting like I am. And I need to worship the one who is. Because ultimately, sin is what happens when we set up our own throne and try to overthrow God's rule. That's why sin is so serious. It's more than just a mistake. It's more than just breaking a rule. It's more than just breaking a law. It is seeking to overthrow the power and authority of God. But God knew that was going to happen. And so even in creation, he said, I will have my throne and I will have the place of people worshiping me and I will send my son there to save it when they walk away from me. Even in Genesis There is the beginning of this plan for him to send his son to die on the cross in our place. And sometimes I wonder how hard it was for God to create all things, knowing that by creating it, he was sentencing his son to die on the cross. And yet he still did it. And his plan is still carried out. Messy as we look at it, but it culminates in the end times and the perfect plan restored. God on his throne us living in perfect worship and relationship with him. This world, and frankly, your life, is not a Pinterest veil. You might look at it often that way and say, man, I've really messed this up. That might be true. But God's plan is still good. And nothing undermines his plan. And we need to wake up every day and say, God, you are God and I am not. And I will trust you and I will follow you because I've been trying to do this too much on my own. God's plan will never fail and it will be carried out perfectly for him to rule in a perfect loving relationship with us as we worship in a perfect loving relationship with him with no sorrow, no sin, no pain. And right now we have a choice. Are we going to live in recognition of that plan? Or are we going to ignore it and live our own way? And you're going to see one thing after another in the early chapters of Genesis of what happens when people seek to ignore God's plan. You're also going to see the incredible blessings of salvation that come for those that trust God in his plan, in his ways. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are God and we are not. And Father, we live in a world that pushes us so often to make so much of ourselves. To, to throw off this idea that we need anybody or we need you. you. You're described as a weakness or a crutch for those that just don't know better. Oh, Father, how far we've come from Genesis chapter 1 and 2. And God, I pray as, as followers of Christ today, we would know who you are through your word. That we would not allow this world to define you. But we would say, I know better. I serve the God who was there in the beginning I serve the God who has a plan that was implemented in the beginning, who has a perfect rule for a perfect relationship. And I was created for a reason, to worship you, Father. And I was saved for that same reason. And Christ is returning to accomplish that same purpose. It's all your plan. For you are the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. May we wake up tomorrow and the next day and the next day And say, God, I will live your perfect plan. In your name we pray. Amen.